produced by WBUR and the Boston Globe. This wasn't done by a bunch of jamokes. Uh, the Merlino gang out of TRC, no one doubted their capability to do any sort of crime. And they were doing all sorts of crimes. Yeah, they could have done it, absolutely. I don't have them. He goes, if I had them, I'd take that $5 million. I'd give them to you. He goes, I'm just as interested in finding them as you are. I want to get the money. Who wouldn't want to be prince of the city? Find these paintings and you emerge prince of the city. All of your sins are forgiven. This is the story of two men. One of them was born lucky. The other wasn't. One of them had options and from them chose a life of crime. The other had none and defaulted to one. And when these two men met, the lucky one was young and handsome and had also, it is alleged, gotten away with murder. The other one was middle-aged and beaten down and had done hard time for a murder he didn't commit. This is the story of David Turner and George Reisfelder, two men who prove that the criminal life is an equalizing one that erases distinctions like where you came from and where you could have gone. This is David Turner on a lousy phone line from prison, after his luck had run out. Well, you know, actually, I, I, I had nothing to do with the robbery. It was 17 years ago. I was 23 years old. Um, and, you know, just, it's rumor and conjecture, you know. Um, you, you know, how do you defend yourself against that? And this is George Reisfelder, remembering his worst hard time. One night I woke up about... 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, and uh, sweating, shaking. I stood up at the cell door, looked out at the cell block, it was quiet. And I, uh, that's when it really dawned on me. I said to myself, this is real. And I just might be spending the rest of my life in here. David Turner and George Reisfelder found themselves pulled into the gravitational orbit of crime boss Carmelo Merlino at TRC Auto Electric at the same time, the late 1980s. That's the auto body shop about four miles from the Gardner Museum that doubled as an underworld nerve center. Drug deals, illegal weapons, armored car heists, murder. Last time, we told you about the FBI sting in 1999 that brought Merlino and that criminal enterprise down. But we didn't tell you everything. From WBUR Boston and the Boston Globe, this is Last Scene. I'm Jack Rodolico. And I'm Kelly Horan. This is Episode 4, Two Bad Men. And here's someone who spent years trying to follow the trail of both of them. My name is Ulrich Bozer, and I'm the author of The Gardner Heist. My book argued that David Turner and George Reisfelder were the individuals who robbed the museum. Bozer, who is a senior fellow at a Washington, D.C. think tank now, remains passionate about the Gardner mystery. At 
the heart of this case is a question mark. We don't know where the paintings are. And it's remarkable. I mean, these are $500 million worth of art that's stolen. Let's just be clear, right? You could trade the paintings to, you know, basically make a, a Hollywood film, right? And have money left over to buy like a, a seven-bedroom house. I mean, it is, it is crazy how valuable they are. And, you know, if you just look at the Vermeer per inch, what you could buy with it. And running through this story, Bozer says, is a tale of two cities, the tension between those who possess the old masters and those who would risk everything to steal them. The gardener is the perfect vehicle to tell the story of Boston. It, in my mind, represents so much of the city's respect for art and culture, its value of of learning and, and these sort of really richer ideas, and then also represents this other side of the city that is rough and and dirty and and criminal, and we have this tension that rests at the center of it all. And someone who moved between those worlds and settled in the latter is David Turner. He turned down our request for an interview, but Elric Bozer spoke with him in 2007. Not in person. Turner was on a phone line from prison. That's because Turner was one of the men, alongside Carmelo Merlino, arrested in that early morning Loomis Fargo vault sting on TRC Auto Electric. Remember the two suspects who fled TRC and crashed their car after FBI agents pursued them? David Turner was in the passenger seat. I do believe that David Turner is going to go down in history alongside the Boston Strangler, alongside uh, Whitey Bulger as one of the most notorious criminals to come out of Boston. Turner told Bozer that... Once the FBI had him in custody, there was just one thing the agents wanted to know. Bozer typed notes as he listened to Turner on speakerphone. You know, they wanted to know about the, the guy that was in. He, what was said was, you know, give us the paintings and, and you can go home. Um, they told me they had information from several sources that I was an actual participant in the robbery. David Turner told Bozer that the FBI said, essentially, we know you did it. So who is David Turner? And why were the Boston FBI agents who arrested him so convinced that he knew something about the Gardner heist, they offered him a get-out-of-jail-free card to talk? Well, let me take you back to the beginning. This is investigative reporter Michael Blanding. When I was a staff writer at Boston Magazine, I received a letter from a prisoner. This one in particular really caught my attention because it mentioned the Gardner Museum robbery. And so right away, I was intrigued by it and wrote right back to the person who wrote me the letter, which was a uh, fellow by the name of David Turner. That first letter started a correspondence between Blanding and Turner that lasted for several years. Some of Turner's letters, Blanding says, offered tantalizing hints about the Gardner heist and other unsolved crimes. I can show you one of these letters that I found where he says, I'm happy to share this information about the Gardner Museum as well as these other crimes that, that I have knowledge of. And he never said that he actually participated in any of the crimes, but he certainly made it seem like he had some uh, ability to talk about them. In a letter dated October 26, 2003, Turner proposes that Blanding write a book about his life. In a neat schoolboy's script, Turner writes, I would briefly go into my childhood and the events that I believe contributed in my going down the wrong path, namely the death of my father. 
He continues, I think a book of this type would appeal to a wide audience. The target would be the true crime, artsy type. Let me know what you think. I hope to hear from you soon. Best regards. He was always just a consummate gentleman in all of his correspondence with me. I sort of grew to believe that there was always some sort of angle that he was working. David Turner's high school career had been dotted with superlatives. At school in a suburb of Boston, Turner had been a standout three-season athlete. His peers had voted him most unique and had given him the nickname Cracker Jack. He had a broad, round face with wide, high cheekbones, a mop of light brown hair, and a grin that conveyed confidence and mischief. You know, I talked to several of his childhood friends who said he was just, you know, really uh, intelligent and charismatic and loyal. He would always be there for you. And, uh, you know, just painted this picture of this, you know, real all-American kid. You know, somebody was like really going places. Just not places like TRC Autoelectric. Because one of his accomplices from TRC had brought along a hand grenade for the Loomis Fargo vault heist, David Turner had also received a long sentence. 38 and a half years, uh, no one would be happy about it, but you would have thought that, you know, once they had uh, arrested us and, you know, the beatings didn't show up, you know, they, they would have got reasonable with us, but, you know, uh, you know, it was business as usual for the Boston office of the FBI. By business as usual, Turner meant that he believed that he'd been set up for one crime, the planned Loomis Fargo robbery, because the FBI needed leverage in order to question him in another one, the Gardner case. Turner alleged entrapment by the FBI and twice appealed his conviction and lost. But the reason the Boston FBI was so interested in David Turner in the first place is because of other crimes he's alleged to have gotten away with. Crimes with dates that bookend the Gardner heist and with MOs that resemble it. Robert Sakellis is the former assistant attorney general for Massachusetts who spent years in the 1990s trying to put David Turner behind bars for those crimes. The feeling was to, you know, to really take a run at David Turner. The feeling was that he was a very dangerous individual. Sakellis's break came in 1992 when a longtime friend and sometime accomplice of David Turner's was swept up in the drug trafficking sting on TRC Autoelectric. His name was Charlie Pappas. Charlie Pappas was a second-generation Coke dealer for Carmelo Merlino. When he was hauled in on drug-dealing charges, Pappas's best option to avoid prison time was to flip on Turner. The two young men had been inseparable for years. Their criminal pastimes overlapped, too. Eventually, and I should say allegedly, David was involved with a number of more serious crimes. There was a murder of a gay social worker who gave Turner and Pappas a ride home from Provincetown, and and he turned up dead that night. They were never able to pin Turner to the crime, however. There was a robbery of the Bull and Finch pub, the Cheers, uh, you know, the pub that serves as the model for Cheers, and someone lifted $50,000 from uh, the Bull and Finch, and David was thought to be involved with that. And then there was a home invasion uh, robbery that happened in, in 1990, Allegedly, uh, Turner and Pappas came and invaded the home of this couple and made off with $130,000 in cash and jewelry. David Turner's rap sheet is both long and incomplete. Missing among its 29 charges is that social workers beating death in 1985, the summer after Turner graduated from high school. 
Robert Sikelis says Turner was one of the coldest criminals he'd ever met. In my opinion, it was just ice cold. I mean, it was, it, was, uh, it was chilling to be in the same room at times, and that's from very seasoned state police investigators as well. He was a cool customer, as they say. I mean, he showed uh, no emotion whatsoever. Very stoic, very uh, focused, very sure of himself, and seemed uh, wholly uh, uninterested and unconcerned with what was going on around him, although he was not, uh, not, not a dumb person, that's for sure. Sikelis's first run at David Turner in the so-called Cheers robbery ended in an acquittal. Sikelis next prepared to prosecute Turner for a 1990 home invasion. Charlie Pappas agreed to testify that he had been the getaway driver for Turner and his accomplice in that robbery. Then, just days before the trial was set to start in late 1995, Charlie Pappas was shot and killed on Thanksgiving Eve. I still remember that very, very vividly. Um, I got a call from a state police uh, lieutenant, and we uh, and we all rushed uh, to the scene. He'd been shot, if I remember, twice in the mouth, uh, if memory serves. We were never able to prosecute anyone for that. We have we had very clear suspicions as to who that was. He was given he was a cooperating witness, but unfortunately, we never had um, enough evidence to prosecute. Charlie Pappas had been shot twice in the mouth. It was explained to me as a young prosecutor at the time by some very, very seasoned uh, state police agents that that's uh, the telltale sign of, uh, you know, don't be a rat, don't talk, don't cooperate. Robert Sakella says he believes that David Turner was behind the killing. He was our prime suspect. As ever, suspicion clung to David Turner, but charges didn't. A prosecutor dubbed him the Teflon Gangster of the South Shore. So four years before the Boston FBI sting on TRC Auto Electric that would finally put David Turner in prison, Robert Sakellis, who had tried and failed twice to do so, had an epiphany about Turner's alleged robberies. They looked an awful lot like the Gardner heist, but on a much smaller scale— Sikelis realized that the entire time he'd been working with Charlie Pappas to nail Turner for those robberies, he could have been asking him if Turner had also been one of the men who robbed the gardener. Unfortunately, by the time we sensed any connection to the gardener uh, museum, Pappas was dead. Two thieves relying on an inside guy, wearing disguises, using handcuffs in the middle of the night at the end of a holiday weekend— In details of David Turner's alleged robberies, it was hard to miss the hallmarks of the Gardner heist. This is when David Turner, a free man, if not an innocent one, landed squarely on the radar of investigators for the Gardner robbery, too. I've seen memos that they sent directly to the uh, director of the FBI saying that they believe I was a participant. They they, uh, sent my prints to Washington to try to match up with prints of the Gardner, which came back negative. Elric Bozer says that while David Turner had to deny involvement in the Gardner heist, he seemed unable to keep from insinuating that he knew something about it. The most curious thing that happened with me and David was that he he wrote me this letter where he uh, was included this poem and essentially said, you know, he did not commit the Gardner theft, but he did want to be on the cover of my book. And in my mind... You know, it, it was it was a form of bragging, right? He, he tried to insert himself into this case. And if he did commit the robbery, and 
and we don't know that for sure, right? He's in a tough position, right? He doesn't have access to the paintings or he'd be out of prison. Now, David Turner has always said he'd never cooperate with authorities investigating the Gardner heist. But what if he could lead them to the stolen Gardner art? Would they let him go? What if he couldn't give them the paintings, but could give them something useful? That's what Boston Globe reporter Shelley Murphy wondered in 2016 when she made a sharp discovery. I was hearing some things about whether or not he might cooperate, and I looked at the Bureau of Prisons website, which shows release date, and when I looked at it, I knew. I said, that wasn't the release date that was there before, and I noticed that the release date had changed. So that's how I saw it, that I knew that he initially was supposed to get out on one date, and suddenly they just took off a bunch of years. (laughs) David Turner's 38-and-a-half-year prison sentence was suddenly seven years shorter. Why? Why would a judge shave that time off the sentence of a man suspected in at least one unsolved murder? Our colleague Steve Kirkjian thinks he knows. Seven years reduction off a criminal sentence, there's only one reason for it, according to the Bureau of Prisons, because he cooperated. What was he cooperating on? The Gardner Museum. What did he give? That's the ultimate question. Shelley Murphy, who wrote a Globe piece about this with Steve, says this makes sense. I mean, I think our story certainly suggested it was a possibility because there's no public explanation as to why it was reduced. And in those cases, it generally means cooperation. If it was because of some new federal sentencing guideline, you know, decision, it would be detailed in the record. And it's not. Was David Turner in on the robbery of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum? The FBI has said they believe the two thieves that actually went in are dead. So that tells you they don't believe David Turner went inside. So everything that we've seen about David Turner, he's usually the guy inside, like Mm -hmm. strong-arming, like he's very aggressive. And so, so what role would he have played? you know, somewhere on the outside, standing guard. Why wouldn't he be inside? And, you know, it's frustrating. All these theories are frustrating. For everything that points toward these particular suspects is something that points away. Something like the presumably straightforward question of where David Turner was the night of the Gardner heist. There are clues that seem to let him off the hook, and there are others that don't. Steve Kirkton explains. I went looking for documents. I found receipts credit card receipts. They showed David Turner was in Florida on March 15th, three days before the the robbery. Where was he? He was buying spy equipment from a Miami shop called the Spy Shops of Miami. And after that, there are no credit card receipts for the day of the heist, March 18th. But Steve says there is one for two days after, March 20th. It showed he was turning in a vehicle, a rental car, at the Fort Lauderdale airport and using his credit card to pay for that vehicle. But on that receipt is another driver's license number. So someone returned a car that had been rented in David Turner's name. It's just not clear, based on that different driver's license number on the receipt, that it was actually David Turner. Steve doesn't know for sure, but he knows what it looks like. This was a ploy by him in order to uh, later 
tell the investigators, oh, I was in Florida at the time. It's, he created an alibi. He created an alibi. And while he was in Florida, three days before the heist, Turner spent $645.01 in a spy supply store. We don't know what he bought there, but we can guess. Well, the spy store had all sorts of uh, James Bond-type equipment. They had, uh, they had uh, listening devices that could pick up two-way radios. They had all sorts of, uh, at the day, non-digital devices, electronic devices that could uh, look over the fence. The kind of equipment that could help a guy waiting outside of a museum while it's being robbed. Exactly. When we come back, the other guy. Probably the best thing you'd say about Reisfelder is he's the most loyal person you'd ever want to meet. Probably the worst thing you could say about him was he was a stone-cold psycho. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I'm Robert Beauchamp. I'm prisoner at MCI Norfolk. In 1973, Robert Beauchamp was sentenced to life in prison for murder. The man who would become his cellmate, George Reisfelder, had been in since 1967, serving a life sentence for a murder he said he did not commit. Our colleague from the Boston Globe, Steve Kirchin, joined us for an interview with Beauchamp in prison. What was your commonality? What did you see oh, in him? It was a homosexual relationship. Yep. But, I mean... Be- Could you just describe him physically? What did he look like back then? And, you know, what, what drew you to him? Um, what attracted you to him? Oh, he was halfway decent looking. He, had a, he was very well built. He worked out all the time. He had kind of a beetle haircut, very straight hair. And um, about 5'10", maybe 170, 75 pounds. Robert Beauchamp and George Reisfelder were lovers, and in 1974, the pair escaped from prison. Reisfelder was caught after three years and sent back to Massachusetts. Beauchamp remained on the lam for a decade before being caught. It had not been a placid romance. Yeah, a couple of times we had Mexican standoffs, and the only reason that... um he backed down with both times I had a 357, and he only had a small 22 or 25 automatic. As I had said to him at the time, worst you're going to do is wound me. This hits you anywhere, you're dead. So he backed off. In 1980, Assistant District Attorneys Roanne Schragau and John Kerry, yes, that John Kerry, 
took on Reisfelder's claims of innocence. The pair unearthed evidence that had been suppressed at trial. They also learned that just a year into Reisfelder's sentence, the real killer had made a deathbed confession exonerating him. No one had let Reisfelder know. Schregau, who is now a judge in Massachusetts, and Kerry, the former U.S. Secretary of State and presidential candidate, won Reisfelder's release in August of 1982. Reisfelder had not only lost 16 years of his life in prison, his first wife left him, his kids were taken away, his mother died, and when he got out, he was denied compensation for his wrongful conviction. Anthony Amore says Reisfelder had few prospects. He spent a long time, 16 years, in the country's toughest prison for something he hadn't done. Who was he going to be friends with when he got out of jail? You know, it wasn't, oh, George is out and uh, uh, John Kerry and Rowan Schregau are going to, you know, be his best friends forever now. That's not how it works. You know, you gravitate to the people that you know. The people he knew were from prison. People like Carmelo Merlino. Robert Beauchamp says that when Reisfelder was released in 1982, Merlino was waiting for him with a job at TRC Autoelectric. And uh, they started a major cocaine operation for years. Someone else was waiting for George Reisfelder when he got out, too. Okay, so my name is Janice Santos. Well, I was married at one time to George Reisfelder, and George Reisfelder is, I guess, a prime suspect in the robbery, the theft. I guess I wonder, did you guys fall in love when when he was in prison? Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I thought so, you know, but, you know, in hindsight, what did I know about love, you know? But, yeah, we did. And so the plan was for him to come out, move in with me, and that's what happened. Two months after George Reisfelder's release, Janice Santos married him. It was October 16, 1982, and Santos was in the Army National Guard. I was 22 years old. I was uh, working a supply job, but I had just taken the flight aptitude selection test, and um, I had, like, the second highest mark in the battalion. I really did well on the test, and I uh, went and took the flight physical, and I was going to be going to flight school. What were you going to fly? Hueys. I, I don't know what a that helicopter. is. A helicopter. <laughs> a, a, a UH-1. It's, it's a helicopter. <laughs> wow, so... That that seems pretty impressive. Were there many female helicopter pilots at the time in Massachusetts? There were none. I would have been the first. But Janice Santos didn't become the state's first female helicopter pilot. So he wouldn't let me leave the house so I couldn't go to work. I He wouldn't let me go out on the weekends to go to drill because obviously when I went to work, I was going to screw around with somebody. He couldn't watch me. So... Um, Eventually, after I didn't go to enough drills, I got thrown out of the military, thrown out with a dishonorable discharge. Reisfelder was vicious to Santos. He went through her stuff, looking for evidence that he couldn't trust her. A poem a previous boyfriend had written threw him into a rage. Just a warning, what you're about to hear is disturbing. He was frothing at the mouth about this thing, and uh, and he grabbed me by the hair, and then and then, and I, of course, I was stupid. I fought back. And this is, was all my, always my problem. You know, I always fought back. And uh, so then he'd grab me by the throat and start choking me. So, I mean, so very quickly within the first two weeks, it was violent. 
And I figured, well, he just got out of prison. He's just going to adjust a little bit. And it didn't happen. And then it got to where I was wanted to leave or wanted him out of there. And he said, you can't leave me. I will go after your, I'll go after your family. And, and no, he would have. He was very capable. So I just became a prisoner for six, seven years. George Reisfelder had an altogether different take on his life with Santos. Here he is in the 1986 documentary about wrongfully imprisoned men, exonerated, the wrong man. I was fortunate I was finally able to move up to New Hampshire and get away from the rat race. I, uh, I married a beautiful young girl. Oh, I'd love someday to own my own house. Maybe a couple of more years down the line, uh, having a couple of little ones run around. That'd be uh, nice. That's all I want. In one scene, Santos walks behind Reisfelder, her head down. She's so young. She looks submissive. We never hear her voice. Even as that documentary aired, Santos was trying to find the courage to leave Reisfelder. She finally managed it in 1989. The following year, her divorce would come through, and her ex-husband would join a cast of men named in connection to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum robbery. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. In the late 1980s, David Turner and George Reisfelder's lives in crime converged. Carmelo Merlino's coke-dealing operation out of TRC Auto Electric was thriving. It was also being surveilled by a law enforcement operation that would take it down in 1991. Robert Beauchamp says the TRC gang was flying too close to the sun. And from his perch in prison, he says, he knew it. So he offered Reisfelder, who still visited him in prison, sometimes with David Turner in tow, some advice. Turner was interested in getting out of the drug business, and I kept telling Reisfeld the same thing. Sooner or later, you guys are going to get popped because you're dealing with the scum of the earth with junkies. And as soon as one of them gets busted, you know, they have diarrhea of the mouth. They're going to sell out their mothers to get out of jail. 
and they're going to say, oh, he's my supplier, Reisfelder. So that's when we started talking about getting some crime insurance, figuring that that was going to happen sooner or later. So that's when I suggested to him, you know, if you could steal a few million dollars worth of art and just put it away, then if you get popped, you can, you know, wheel and deal it at that point. So he told Molino and Turner about it, and uh, they all thought that that was a fairly good idea. And I told them probably the best uh, museums to rob would be university or college ones because they probably have the least amount of security. And so I guess Merlino basically, and maybe Reisfeld and Turner to a far lesser extent, started canvassing museums in the Boston area. And eventually Merlino decided on the gardener. Did you get all that? Robert Beauchamp says the idea to steal paintings as crime insurance was his. Steal a painting, get popped, swap that painting for freedom. Easy. Just don't blame Beauchamp for the Gardner heist. My only connections with the Gardner robbery is I had the generic idea they should steal art as crime insurance. I never, ever mentioned the Gardner, and that's it. I don't want to take any blame for the Gardner. Over the years, Beauchamp has told many versions of his theory about the Gardner heist and the whereabouts of the paintings. Anthony Amore told us his leads haven't panned out. But the one detail that Beauchamp has never changed is who he says did it. Carmelo Merlino, David Turner, and George Reisfelder. When he came to see me after the Gardner robbery, I just looked at him and shook my head and said, way too much, George because I realized at that point, the, I thought maybe they'd steal maybe up to $5 million at the most. But when it turned out to be hundreds of millions, I said, you know what type of investigation this is going to be compared to what it would have been? Way too much, George. If Beauchamp had harbored any doubt at all about whether his old friend and lover had pulled off the Gardner heist, he didn't once he saw the police sketches of the suspects. And... uh when I started seeing the uh, FBI sketches of them, I thought, those disguises weren't really all that good. I mean, if you knew who it was, you could just look at it and tell them it was who it was. Of course, they didn't have anything with Merlino because he waited outside the museum in a van, you know, walkie-talkie, keeping, you know, as a lookout. Um, how do you know that? Reisfelder told me. In 2009, Anthony Amore, working with the Boston Herald newspaper, hired a forensic medical artist to redo the police sketches of the Gardner heist suspects. She worked solely off the description given to her by one of the guards who had seen both thieves. She'd never seen George Reisfelder in her life. And um, when she unveiled these portraits to me, and she brought up one of the images, the thief with the slimmer face, I looked at it and said, wow, that's George Reisfelder. But let me be very clear. I'm not saying George Reisfelder committed the heist. I'm just saying the work of art looked exactly like George to the point where he had a police uniform photoshopped onto him. And you hold the two, and he looks exactly like this composite work of art. George Reisfelder does resemble the police artist's sketch of one of the suspects, long, narrow face, prominent chin, bowl haircut. Of all the men floated as possible suspects in the Gardner heist, no one is more of a dead ringer. 
Anthony Amore showed the drawing to Janice Santos. I said, yeah, it looks like George, and I told Anthony right off, but I don't, the George that I knew would never, ever put on a cop uniform, so I, I don't, I really don't know that he would have done this, and I don't think he could have done it, but. Why do you think he couldn't have done it? The George that I knew wasn't, uh, he was, he never, he couldn't think on his feet, and you kind of have to think on your feet doing something like that. You have to be planned and articulate, and I don't know that he could have pulled it off. Like I said, he could have changed, but. The guy that I was married to could not have done that. But someone else could have. And when Janice Santos first learned about the heist, she had an immediate intuition about who that was. I thought it was Mel. Yeah, so you hear the news and you think Carmelo Merlino. Yeah. Carmelo Merlino. The very man who died in prison rather than give up anything he might have known about how the Gardner heist went down or where the paintings might have been. On March 11, 1991, almost the anniversary of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum robbery, George Reisfelder died. He was 51. The cause of death was a cocaine overdose. But his story doesn't end there. Sometime after Reisfelder's death, his brother, Richard Reisfelder, who has also since died, reached out to Anthony Amore. He'd heard his late brother's name mentioned in connection with the Gardner heist, and he wanted to clear his brother's name. Amore invited him to the museum and asked him to look at images of the stolen art. I always start with Storm in the Sea of Galilee, which is the one that's most commonly recognized by people. And he had never seen it and had never seen the concert. And um, after you pass by those two, it seems like... um, an exercise of futility, but I went through the other 11 pieces. And the last one was Shea Tortoni. And um, when he saw it, he, I can only describe it as jumped in his chair and became very upset and told me, paraphrasing, he said, Anthony, I have to tell you, I've seen that painting in my brother's apartment. He was very upset. It was visceral. He was teary-eyed. And he said, my brother did it. My, my brother did it. He had that painting. And before then, he was saying that his brother hadn't done it, but it was seeing that painting that convinced him that his brother must have done it. Yes. And I believed him. Amore says Richard Reisfelder put him in touch with someone else who'd also seen Manet's Shea Tortoni in George Reisfelder's apartment. Amore reached out to that person, and after a long delay came the response. Yes, they'd seen it in the apartment. And I replied and said, on a scale of 1 to 10, how certain are you? And the person replied, 10. A search of George Reisfelder's apartment turned up a cache of stolen goods, including drugs and weapons, but no Manet. So if it had ever been there, where did it go? Okay, good afternoon, everybody. At a press conference five years ago, the Boston FBI said that they knew where the Gardner art was taken after it was stolen. For the first time, we can say with a high degree of confidence We've determined that in the years since the theft, the art was transported... Next time, we follow the stolen art's trail and tell you with a high degree of confidence 
what we think. To see a video recreation of the night of the robbery and view the 13 stolen pieces, go to our website, wbur.org slash last scene. And comb through the archives, see the evidence, and read 28 years of Gardner Heist reporting at bostonglobe.com slash last scene. Last Scene is a production of WBUR and the Boston Globe. Our consulting producer is Stephen Kirkchen. Production and sound design by John Parati. Eve Zukoff is our production assistant. Additional production by Catherine Brewer. Our digital team is Amy Gorell, Tiffany Campbell, Daigo Fujiwara, Jesse Costa, and Elizabeth Gillis. We had help from the Boston Globe's Shelley Murphy, Brendan McCarthy, and John Tlumaki. Digital help from Heather Cyrus, Jason Tui, and Ryan Huddle. Editing by Jessica Alpert. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. I'm senior reporter Jack Rodolico. And I'm senior producer and reporter Kelly Horan. Thank you to filmmaker Julian Cranin for permission to use clips from his documentary, Exonerated, The Wrong Man. And special thanks to artist Sophie Cal, who first used the title Last Scene at the Gardner Museum in 1991 and who granted us permission to use it. If you have a tip, theory, or thought, call our tip line at 617-929-7999. That's 617-929-7999. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Last Scene Podcast, all one word. T'was a quiet and humble fellow just hanging around with a guy named Mello, minding my business and working each day, waiting on fortune to come my way. Had a few bucks and life was good. The girls all called me Hollywood. And nary a night was spent alone for girls galore I could take home. T'was a good and quiet life for I was blessed with a minimal strife. I had good reason to happily sing, but that was only until the sting. <laughs>